What's up, peeps? How are you? This is the Ebb and Flow podcast. I'm your guy, Eben Britton. It's great to be with you all on this magnificent day. Today's episode is the first of something new. This is Reality Now, an interview my brother Augustus conducted with the great Stephen Halpern. Stephen Halpern is a Grammy-nominated musician. Some consider him to be the father of New Age music. Um, really interest, interesting, incredible story uh, Stephen has. And it, it's really fascinating how he went from being a classically trained jazz musician to a God experience in Northern California in the midst of the redwood trees that changed his life entirely in the direction of the music he was creating. Super powerful. You may know this style of music as brainwave music, alpha wave, theta wave, deep alpha, deep theta to create meditative states in the mind, super powerful, super powerful vibrations. Um, and it's a doozy. So this is going to be something that we're experimenting with moving forward. My brother Gus is a tremendous journalist and, and conducts interviews frequently with pretty remarkable people. So I thought, Hey man, why don't you just take the reins and we'll create our own segment here, somewhat like Joe Rogan's MMA Companion episode spinoff. We are doing The Ebb and Flow Presents Reality Now with Augustus Britton, and this is the first of those episodes. I think you guys will really enjoy it. Um, this episode of The Ebb and Flow Podcast is brought to you by Bioptimizers. Bioptimizers make some of the most awesome supplements on the planet. My favorite in particular is Magnesium Breakthrough. If you're looking to optimize your well-being, there's no better place to start than with your sleep and recalibrating your nervous system. Magnesium is vital to our well-being. Magnesium is a super powerful mineral it's involved in over 200 processes that our bodies go through every single day to keep us in homeostasis. It is fantastic for sleep, gets you out of the sympathetic nervous system, that fight or flight state, and it gets you into the parasympathetic nervous state, rest, digest, recover, and magnesium breakthrough by Bioptimizers is a... Uh, a staple for me in my daily regimen. I highly recommend it. Head over to magbreakthrough.com forward slash ebb and flow 10, excuse me, forward slash ebb and flow. Use code ebb and flow 10 to get 10% off your next order. Highly recommend that. My book, The Ebb and Flow Basic Tools to Transform Your Life, is now available on Amazon. You can go check it out if you have not already. There's paperback, hardcover, also ebook available for your Kindle if you're into that. Audiobook is in the work 
works currently. I'm currently recording the audiobook. Look for that sometime end of April, early May. I'll keep you guys posted on that. For all your merch, ebb and flow merch, head over to higherpowerworkshop.com. And uh, we've got all your ebb and flow power tribe gear. This is the ebb and flow power tribe psychedelic tie dye t-shirt I'm wearing here. Uh, we've got yoga mats, hats, all kinds of good stuff. Um, another very exciting product that I am have just become a part of, I'm really excited about it, is Feel Free. Feel Free is a proprietary blend of kava and kratom. Guys, there's nothing quite like this stuff on, on the market. There's nothing quite as as fantastic as this stuff for creating a sense of euphoria, mental energy, creativity. Um, it has pain relieving aspects to it. Now, I have tried Kratom on its own before. I'm not a huge fan of it. I've tried Kava. I like Kava a little bit more. And there's numerous strains of this stuff, right? But what J.W. Ross, the founder of Feel Free, has done over the course of many years of, of research and development and using himself as a guinea pig, really in an effort to he was seeking out an alternative to alcohol and he made something that is so profound. I can't really explain how awesome it is. This stuff feel free. If you struggle with alcoholism or if alcohol is something that you find is not doing you is not serving you anymore. This is something that can help ease that transition off of alcohol and off of really many substances. Um, it's fantastic. You can head over to Botanic. Excuse me. You can head over to, I will have the, <laughs> I will have the website available in the show notes, but use code EBBINFLOW40 to get 40% off your next order. Uh, this stuff is pretty amazing and I'm just, I'm super stoked and grateful to be a part of it and on the feel free team. So look out for that. That's about it folks. Uh, one last thing I would be remiss. Head over to realitynow.substack.com to tap into my brother Gus's weekly newsletter. It's awesome. He's an incredible mind, heart, soul. Uh, and he does, he does amazing work as well. So enjoy that. Enjoy this episode. It's an incredible one. Lots of love to you guys. Have a magnificent day standing in your highest greatness because we need you. Peace. You have unlocked the eternal link to internal source. The key of imagination. Your admission. Access to the enlightened dimension. A gateway at the junction of darkness and light. The place at which the chaos of our conditioned frame of mind give way to a life in constant flux, only to be mastered through vigilant discipline. 
Peaceful times may come, testing times may go. This is the ebb and flow. Mr. Stephen Halpern, it's great to have you here. It's great to be here. Yeah, so this is uh, this is the first episode of Reality Now. It's a special edition of the Ebb and Flow podcast. Um, so it's amazing to be with you. So Stephen, um, you are a musician, Grammy-nominated, uh, over 50 albums, and... Um, one of the fathers of new age music. I don't know if you claim that, but that's certainly what people say about you. And um, you're a really incredible artist. Um, I don't even know where to begin, really. I don't even know where to begin. Um, well, first off, first off, I will... I don't really know how I found your music other than... You know, I had read you had done something, done some music with, uh, I believe his name was John Bradshaw. Oh, yes. For, yeah, so for addiction and and um, healing sounds for that. And, you know, uh, through my journey and self-healing, et cetera, um, you know, I start, I, I've, I've scoured uh, Spotify for different hurts, different healing sounds, sound baths, vibrations, etc. And then, and then I think I came, I kept coming across you. I kept coming coming across your name, different collaborations you had put out, different kind of types of sounds, and I was just immediately taken away. You know, I was immediately like, "Wow, who is this person?" And then, you know, your album art was funky. You know, little pictures of you, you know, really, really great stuff. So, um, I don't, I don't exactly know where to begin, but can you, you know, I suppose we could begin with when did you start, when did you realize you wanted to make a different kind of music, if you will, the That's music great, you make today? That's a great, uh, place to stop. And let me just jump back a little bit to something that you yeah. said with John Bradshaw, I mm -hmm. did not compose music for addictions. When I met John in April 1985, very briefly, I was on tour with my, my first book, National Tour, Sound Health, and he wanted to meet me. I was not really aware of him and his work. He hadn't really exploded into the public. But what he said to me is that the meditation and healing music that I was doing created that silent, that, that inner silence that is so important to the 12-step program and to people's general well-being that it right. really helped him work his program of sobriety. Now, mm -hmm. I was coming to that from a type A New York uh, early ADHD <laughs> fun high functional uh, individual who needed something to help me slow down, help me uh, mm -hmm. something that was legal, non-addictive, and... Mm -hmm. uh, energy efficient to mm -hmm. help me manage my stress, which I didn't even right. realize I was under so much stress until I had an early uh, medical exam. And the doctor said, mm -hmm. if you don't learn how to manage your stress, you're going to have a lot of problems in a not too far different future. It's going to cost you a lot of money. So his advice was to start 
learning how to manage stress, that meant, uh, and I was already uh, getting into yoga and meditation, but this now put it on a more material plane rather than just coming uh, from the ancient traditions of healing music uh, to bring it into the modern day. To answer your question, I've always been into music and highly sensitive to sounds. Early uh, in my junior high school career, I got turned on to improvisation, jazz improvisation, and lights went on in my head, and that just opened up a whole world of creativity that was pretty much mental. I learned all the scales and the rules and which chords get substituted for which other chords and got very good on trumpet and guitar. I was not, uh, I didn't have access to a keyboard in those days, so I wasn't playing keyboard. Mm. Uh, but through those experiences, I had, uh, when I got, got up to college, very early I was invited to sit in with a high-energy jazz band. And, and, and this, is, this is the key for that. This was in the, uh, it was, I could tell you when it was, it was September 1965, and the band was playing music like John Coltrane and McCoy Tyner. And I was invited uh, because I would travel with my trumpet in its case, walking around campus. I was invited to come onto stage and jam with the musicians. And as I'm playing and playing some of my uh, favorite riffs and, and fancy runs to show how good I was, suddenly the instrument started playing itself. The music started flowing. I shifted gears and went into another level where it wasn't me playing the music. I was being played by the music. So that showed me that there was a whole other world beyond just mental and uh, intellectual games to play with music. And I pursued that as I was pursuing my uh, sociology degree and undergraduate studies, but also started to focus on the uh, very difficult to find books that talked about the ancient traditions of healing music in Egypt and Greece and China. Mm-hmm. So that brings me to uh, 1969, I have an eight-piece jazz rock band in Buffalo. We're getting uh, heralded as the next Blood, Sweat, and Tears and the next Chicago. We go to New York uh, for the big recording session, and we get royally ripped off. And I now have two weeks uh, unscheduled time, and I had been wanting to get out to California, and I wound up hopping a plane, bought a round-trip ticket for two weeks. I'm going back into grad school to study cross-cultural manifestations of healing music and higher consciousness in Africa, in Asia, etc. And that was my plan. While I'm hitching around the Northern California, San Francisco area, going down to Santa Cruz, uh, one of the people, the van that picked me up, some great hippies, we're talking philosophy and spirituality. I said, where you really want to go is to this place, this sacred redwood grove up in the mountains. We'll take mm. you there. And uh, they took me an hour out of their way. I mean, when does that even happen? You know, okay, so they right. took me an hour of it. They dropped me off at the side of the road. There's no sign that says sacred redwood grove, you know, down mm-hmm. the road. There's 40 mm-hmm. mailboxes. And they had also told me about this Zen center that was mm-hmm. in that area. But mm-hmm. there's bottom line is I'm standing there going, I just got myself into a big problem because this is 
before cell phones. Uh, I'm two miles up a mountain road. There's no traffic. I'm going, what do I do now? So I start praying. I, I do a chant that I learned from Ramdas. And all of a sudden, oh, wow. this guy walks up to the mailboxes and looks at me and says, oh, are you the guy who applied for a staff position at Bridge Mountain Foundation, the Zen Center? Uh-huh. And I said, bum, no, but if you're offering, I'll take it. Wow. So he says, come back and meet the staff in a couple hours. Walk down the road. There's a sacred redwood grove at the end of, you know, this path. Uh-huh. So now I know where I'm going, a place to hang out. I walk down there. And when I find the redwood grove, it's just beautiful. I've never been around redwoods. I get sat down and shift into a spontaneous, really deep meditation. And the answer to your question is I start hearing music that I've never heard before. And for one of the very few times in my life, I hear a voice saying, this is the music that you've been seeking to hear. This is the music that will be healing in the 20th century, the, wow. the, based on what Pythagoras was doing back in ancient Greece, uh, the tradition of sound healing. But more than that, not just did I hear the music in a way that uh-huh. was unlike music that I had heard before, but I heard the sound of the instrument that I didn't know what it was. It turned mm-hmm. out to be the Fender Rhodes electric piano. But more than that wow. is... Your job is to share this music with the world. Now, I'm going, I'm supposed to go back to graduate school. I have no money. I don't know anything about business. There's no way for a musician who's not signed to a major label to even record an album, let alone market it. So I don't think much about that. But I go back. uh, I'm, I'm supposed to meet the staff. I go to the wrong building. There's a piano. I sit down at the piano and I start going into trance and start playing. And about 10 minutes later, uh, there's 10 people in the room saying, who is this guy? And where wow. did you learn to play like that? And can we hire him? And my life changed in that moment. And I gave up my graduate fellowship back at the University of Buffalo. And that place being like Esalen Institute, which was the leading human potential center, no longer right. a Zen center, but... Right. Every weekend, the leading uh, practitioners and scientists would come through and lead workshops. And every weekend, the staff would say, oh, you got to listen to our new staff members' music. So I play some of the music. They say, very nice. It's great for meditation. Uh And Dr. Stanley Krippner and Dr. uh, Dr. Uh, John Lilly, who was famous for his work with dolphins uh, and LSD and other things. Yeah, altered states. they say, if you want, if, if you're really doing something that's unique, you need to mm-hmm. prove it, and you need to prove it with biofeedback research. Mm. And I'm going, mm. I just left graduate school. I just told everyone, you'll never catch me back in graduate school. And I don't know anything about <laughs> you know biofeedback. Where do I even get access to that? And Dr. Right. Kripner says, as a matter of fact, I just became the dean of the most progressive humanistic psychology institute and uh, if you if you apply, I guarantee you'll get uh, accepted. And we have the best biofeedback equipment outside of UCLA and LA. And wow. you could use it for free because you'll be a graduate student. Wow. And that's how my life changed. I called Buffalo and said, I'm not coming back. I was out there in California with a small backpack, the clothes on my back, my guitar and my trumpet, and had to start all over. Wow, and, and that was that was where I started. So I started going um, because the place where I was working, 
I had to work maybe four hours a day to clean and chop wood and, and uh-huh. keep the place happening. But I had a chance to go and sit at the piano and just let the piano teach me. And that's how I started uh-huh. learning what was going on with the new music. And when people would hear it, they would say, wow, that really sounds good. Can you make me a tape? That was in days when cassettes were just starting when there were little reel-to-reels. Uh-huh. And I would spend hours making individual tapes for people and realizing uh, this is not time effective for me. I had no money. I could barely afford the price of the tape. And people said, thank you for the gift. I wouldn't, you know, that they wouldn't consider paying for it. So things kind of just sat non-public. I started doing meditation concerts, at which point people would say, you know, uh, we'd, we'd like to get a, an album. And I'd say, I'd like to make one, but there's no way. And at a Christmas party in December 1974, <clears throat> I'm sitting in with a jazz uh, group with the uh, legendary John Handy, and I'm sitting in on trumpet, and I do some of my fancy trumpet stuff. I, I'm still able to play at that point. And a guy comes over and says, you're pretty good. Do you have an album? I said, no, but I'd really like to. He says, I am just opening up the first multi-track independent recording studio. And I'm also the manager of the first record pressing plant in the San Francisco Bay Area. I said, where do I sign up? I'll be your first client. And I was in wow. the studio seven days later. And that's how I recorded my first album. And then I learned that recording the album is the easy part. Mm -hmm. Telling people about communicating to people, Mm -hmm. uh, marketing it, which I had no skills and no training in any of that. That's the hard stuff. And that's what I've been doing ever since learning, making lots of mistakes, hiring lots of people who knew not much more than me and actually made some really terrible mistakes. But over the years, and certainly the last 25 years, I've learned much more effective ways of communicating, but mm-hmm. all all through what has been my joy and following my bliss has been to get into the recording studio and let's see what music comes through. And sometimes I have some plans and a lot of times I don't. I just go in there, I uh, turn off the lights, light a candle, take a deep mm-hmm. breath, meditate a little bit and start playing and the music flows and that's how I've been able to do uh, so many of the albums I've done. A lot of them are solo, and then some I feature great musicians like yeah. Paul Horn or David mm-hmm. Darling or Paul McCandless or Georgie Kelly. And, mm-hmm. and that's, uh, that's how the uh, discography has evolved over the years. Mm-hmm. Wow. That is such an um, amazing, trippy, cosmic story. I love that. There's so much, there's so much to unpack there. First of all, before you started... One of the things I was because, you know, talking about your era a little bit, um, you know, and whatever. And I'm curious to you, like whatever new age even means and the the kind of evolution of what new age means. And I was going to ask you about Ramdas for some reason. I mean, my brother and I are big, um, you know, lovers of Ramdas and his ilk and um did you did you meet Ramdas or or what? Where did you get that prayer from that you said? Uh, yes, I uh, when he was Richard Alpert, he right. gave a talk at the University of Buffalo before he went to India. He came back uh-huh. and gave a talk as Ramdas when he came back from India. Uh-huh. Uh, many of us wanted to go to India, but I got the opportunity to go to California. Uh, someone else in the audience, Jeffrey Miller at the time, became Lama Suryadas 
went to India. Right. And right. Uh, so we were there. And Ramdas gave us some of the chants that were later mm. in his book, uh, Be Here Now. Right. Uh, and and the one that particularly resonated with me when I was hitchhiking was kind of the hitchhiking mantra, the traveler's mantra for safety and to uh, attract a good person to give you a lift. Uh, Interesting. Over the Now, interestingly, when I came out to California, I had no place to stay. And uh, I hadn't thought through a lot of the thing. I, I had one phone number of somebody I knew from Buffalo who said, mm-hmm. you could put your backpack here for a couple hours, but you can't stay here tonight. Go up to the university and see if you meet some people. So mm-hmm. I meet my trumpet, go up to the university on, uh, by Sproul Hall, which was in Mavio Savio, uh, Savio was, you know, had been given the talks. And... Um, I don't meet anybody. And someone comes up and says, what's that in the case? It's a trumpet. Well, we'll whip it out. Why don't you play? Because there mm-hmm. were folk singers and kunga drummers. And so mm-hmm. it's a trumpet. You don't play trumpet by itself. And he says, well, <laughs> you're a musician, man. Do it. So uh-huh. the reason I'm mentioning this is within one minute after starting to play, this really happy young black guy comes by and says, hey, man, that sounds good. Why don't you come back to my house and we'll jam with uh-huh. my friend? He turns out to be later on Ram Dass's musical director. I mean, how wow, about an interesting guy? connection with it? And his partner, his friend, is Jai Utal, who is now, of course, R- Oh, I love Jai. God, right. Jai has some great songs. Right. My first jam session was with, with Jai and Charlie in 1969. Wow. And, uh, you know, in their little apartment. And I'm, I wound up sleeping on the floor because I had nowhere else to go. Oh, so my God. that was the beginning. Now, the other thing, I'll show you two things. My first album, and because uh-huh. I was told about biofeedback, at that point, what we right. knew about was uh, brainwave biofeedback. In 1973, as I'm getting ready to uh, do my research and connected mm-hmm. with a, a laboratory, Dr. Irving Oil and other people say, and Dr. Krypta says, beyond brainwave, we're going uh-huh. to look at, at, which is electrophotography, which is also at that point called curly in photography. So that's what uh-huh. I shifted to. The problem was it was so far ahead of the public that nobody uh-huh. knew what it was. When I would go to, uh, and I put a cover up on some of the uh, photos from the research. This was a philodendron right. laugh that we photographed the aura of. People said, uh-huh. what is that? Auras? What's an aura? What's a chakra? And I found out very quickly that outside of my, you know, small circle of friends and the the scientists I knew, you couldn't talk to the media about chakras or auras. So I had to develop another way of explaining the fact that the music would balance your energy fields, would balance Uh your brainwaves. And then when uh, Herbert Benson came out with his book, The Relaxation Response, suddenly Uh here was part of the mechanism. My music would evoke the uh, relaxation response more effectively than most any other music out there. In my research, I compared it to the most relaxing classical music, and we blew them out of the... I love Liszt, but we blew them out of the water. Liszt was not (laughs) composing music for relaxation, per se. Amazing. I was. Now, the other other part of that is Mm -hmm. that uh, in the process... I started learning that there was more going on than just deep relaxation, but I couldn't talk a lot about that in terms of mm-hmm. chakras, in terms of brainwave entrainment, but people would feel the effect immediately. 
And that's mm. what got me onto all the TV and radio shows in the early days. I was in LA and got a call from my little part-time agent at the time and wound up that night showing up uh, on the Tom Snyder show and played mm. the first chakra balancing version of my chakra suite on mainstream TV. And it just fell into my lap and, God. uh, that really started exposing my work to a much larger, larger audience. And wow. when I'd appear at some of the conferences, people would say, well, we'd like you to do you know, your talk and play your concert at this event in Chicago or Cincinnati mm -hmm. or New York or Miami. And suddenly I'm flying around the country being invited to, um, <laughs> to speak about sound healing and to perform sound healing concerts. And that's that's how the field really uh, really began. You asked yeah. earlier, would I make that claim? And I do. And as I've been working on my uh, as the a, claim, as the claim of being a, a father. father of new age music, right. there right. was no one putting the music for healing or new age music for meditation, healing, relaxation, etc., out there right. in a public way. There were a number of us who were starting to hear this new music, but I am the one who was pushed uh, and. Not having the money to pay the rent is a great thing that pushes you to learn how to communicate, yeah. learn how to get the music out there. And before right. I brought my music to stores, there were no meditation healing albums in any store anywhere. Wow. There, there were some yoga albums, but they were, you know, that's not music per se. That was part right. of what, what I brought out. And then following me, a lot of other people started coming in. And I yeah. actually did the first uh, multi artist distribution network because stores will say, well, we love your album, uh, but can you get us some other albums? And I knew of a couple mm. others, so I just bought them myself and brought them to stores. I was very happy to get out of that part of the business. But right. as I say, in the early days, there was no one else who was doing it. And yeah. uh, I was also the one who was writing articles about it. And to this yeah. day, as I've been working on my memoir, uh -huh. I've written more articles about sound healing that appeared in all the New Age magazines and so many mm -hmm. other places than anyone else in the field, everyone else combined. And yeah. that's just uh, that's just a reality. It's, it's it just, you know, over 50 years, you build up a lot of uh, media right. coverage. Yeah. Um, wow. So, yeah, I mean, there's... You know, you can throw a rock in certain cities, you know, and you hit a sound bath, you know, these days, or you hit right. a, you hit, you hit a, a, a class that offers chakra balancing crystal bowls or, you know, et cetera. So I can only imagine, but I mean, you were like similar to Ramdas. I mean, he was, you know, one of the people you know, you can probably count them on your hand that was a Westerner that brought back things from, you know, outside of America. I mean, it's interesting that you didn't end up needing to go to India to finding the, or, or to, to, to work to any of those places you had mentioned to find the, um, you know, to find this calling, but, uh, you know, so there's so, there's so much here. I, I I'm curious about so you came from New York City. I'm actually from Brooklyn originally, so I relate to, you know, I don't know. I just, I, 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 you know, I can, I understand, you know, you had mentioned the kind of type A 
energy may, that you had and the the music you were creating. You know, when you had that experience in the Redwoods, I mean, that's a pretty unbelievable, incredible experience to have. I mean, was there a process for you where you were like, okay, wow, I'm not playing jazz anymore. I'm, I'm trying these new instruments. Um, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a remarkable thing to have happen to you. You know, I mean, what was that like? I mean, you know, the, you know, giving me the chronology, it sounds kind of, uh, simplified in a way, but I imagine there was a, a pretty big, um, surrender there possibly to this new calling you had. Oh, absolutely. Uh, my career trajectory when I uh, really was uh, mentored by some of my faculty advisors at University of Buffalo, uh, before Joseph Campbell made famous the phrase, follow your bliss, mm-hmm. Dr. Jeremy Taylor, who became a very famous dream authority and um, mm-hmm. uh, person in that field, was one of my advisors. He said, well, what do you really like to do? Well, right now I really want to learn more about improvisation and get to be really, you know, the context of my some of my other mentors was to connect with our muse. So I wanted to connect with my muse. I wanted to make that connection that uh, Robert Creeley would talk about in terms of the ancient Greeks, where the artists and the musicians would commune and connect with their muse. I wanted mm-hmm. to have that happen for me. And when it started happening, it was, okay, this is one, this is incredible. Now, what do I do with it? I would, st- I was still in those, uh, in the early seventies playing guitar and trumpet in bands. Uh, and it was clear that that was a lifestyle. And I actually got, I didn't get arrested, but I got fired by the manager of one of the nightclubs my band was playing in because I was doing a headstand during a break. And he said, that's uh-huh. illegal. I said, no, this is yoga. I need, you know, I'm standing up all night. It's a smoky lounge. I wow. need to, you know, I was like, well, and I, from another club, I got fired because I was taking too long a guitar solo because, and people were coming to watch me play guitar because I had some of the New York, you know, stuff, uh, the New York chops and ideas and energy. And the manager said, people aren't dancing. They're not drinking. They're not mm. sweating. Uh, you're fired. Mm. So, you know, I I had that that was pushing me up. But when I heard, uh, in fact, that first month in California, um, a band I was sitting in with was opening for Herbie Hancock, the great musician. He had Uh one of the first Fender Rhodes that Miles Davis had turned him on to. And during the break between the band that I was with and Herbie, he was doing his sound check. My back is turned and he does an arpeggio, as I've done thousands of times since then. And I basically almost go out of my body. I said, what mm. is that? And I turn around and it's Herbie playing this instrument that I'd never seen. So I walk right up and say, what is that? He said, oh man, that's just the Fender Rhodes electric piano. Miles wants me to play it. Well, for mm. me, it was a life-changing moment. I said, where do I get one? How do I get one? And I didn't have mm. the money. And so it took me a couple months to get the money together. Uh, but I finally did. And that was a time that then I could then alter my own consciousness by sitting down at the keyboard. As soon as I started playing, I was in a deep alpha and a deep theta state. So it was non-drug uh-huh. influenced. There was no additional right. 
uh, substances. It was just the sound wow. itself. And then when I played these open-ended chords, it would float and listen to the ways that the harmonics would blend wow. together. My consciousness huh. would go into this place. Now we know it's, it's being totally mindful in the moment. I would talk huh. about getting in the space between the notes. That's where I get my, my ideas for composing and, wow. and just follow the music. So that's yeah. really what, what opened up for me. But again, mm -hmm. up until uh, my, my first album came out, there was no way to get paid for that. And that's mm -hmm. another whole chapter for how I created a whole new career path mm -hmm. for a, a career that never existed before. As a sound healer, right. giving lectures, keynote presentations, writing mm -hmm. articles, talking about the whole aspect. Yeah. Before we go any further, let, let yeah. me give you an example of one of the reasons why music like what I do is so different than regular music, which is goal-oriented. Mm -hmm. But even if mm. people don't realize it. If I sing this uh -huh. little pattern that everyone will recognize, just feel what you can feel in your chest, feel what you feel in your head and what where your mind goes. So if I sing the Do, Re, Mi, Fa, Sol, La, Ti, and how many of mm. you are holding your breath right now? How many of you heard that note, that last note, the Do, the completion of that melody of that succession of ascending frequencies that we've been culturally conditioned to know, you hear that. You know where the music is going. That's predictive. It's pattern recognition. The problem is that locks you into a left-brain, analytical, beta brainwave state, the opposite wow. of what you need when you're balanced with the right and left hemispheres in synchrony. And wow. that... When we figured that out early on, I was uh -huh. not even understanding how that was a central aspect of the effect of my music. So I could talk about, and I did in the early days, talk about the uh, chords based on fourths rather than chords based on thirds and this is uh -huh. and that's. The reality was the fact that there wasn't a predictive linearity where uh -huh. the melody is... Uh, not the major thing. If most of all the books and certainly classical talk about the melody is king. It's the imperialist right. uh, aspect of melody and the harmonic uh -huh. imperialism that other people talk about. I left that alone following studies of Indian music, which stays on a tonal center. It's modal. And people mm. like John Coltrane and others who are uh, studying Indian music. So we're not going through all the chord changes that was where jazz was at in the 50s and 60s. Now you can stay on one modality and just become more creative with that. And that's what really allowed my creativity to wow. just flow. I love that. So Stephen, there's so, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm super, one thing I'm most happy about having you on the, on this podcast is that our audience is going to is going to be introduced to you if they haven't heard you yet because what you do is so awesome and profound and healing so i just i just needed to say that say that again Great, but thank you. so you brought so you brought up so you brought up some interesting really interesting things there to me so there's the drug aspect i was going to ask you about drugs i was going to ask you 
how influenced you have been or haven't been by, let's say, psychedelics. You know, we talk a lot about, you know, certain psychedelics and healing uh, drugs on this podcast. I was also, you know, somebody that's coming up for me is like Eric Satie. You know, just how just how he kind of broke that mold. You know, I'm not saying his music is like yours or yours is like his, but I don't know, you know, in the in the oeuvre of classical music, he's he's always been interesting to me how he played with notes differently. Um, So there's the drugs and also editing, you know, I'm and we can go through these one by one, but I'm curious how much editing you might do. You know, if your music, when you sit down to play, is coming from this pure consciousness, this pure kind of intuitive state, how much you might go back to edit. Um, And then also how you decide what instrument you want to play. I'm really curious, like, what are these? Because I don't really know what instrument, like, I love the collaboration you do with uh, Jorge Alfano, I believe that's his name. Mm -hmm. You know, he... You know, I can tell what instrument he it, it's it's like some sort of flute. Um, but, you know, I don't know. And I'm not I'm not a musician, you know, so I'm curious what you do. Is it synthesize? What, what how do you manipulate the keyboard to create the alpha or the theta, uh, you know, um, wave and then. uh so let's start. Where do, where do we even start here? So you you mentioned, yeah. Well, that too, but also, you know how I've been listening to more EMDR music, which I believe yours would be, where you had mentioned it's working through throughout the brain as opposed to one hemisphere of the brain. You know how it's that's a really interesting thing to me, where it's not a linear goal-oriented situation or listening situation so um let's let's start with uh the drug so you said it's not influenced has that been an influence for you i mean even in the in the 70s and the new age movement what has that experience been like for you well uh very limited much more so than i I would imagine most people would imagine but uh certainly uh let me start with uh, cannabis, which has uh, finally become the focus of my most recent album, Cannabis Dreams. Uh, right. My freshman English uh, instructor, 1966, second semester English, uh, one day we're, we're looking at uh, poetry, and he said, today we're going to deal with the poetry of uh, uh, John Lennon and uh, Paul McCartney on the song Tomorrow Never Knows that was based on the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And he says, but to really understand what where they were coming from, you need to be in the same state of consciousness that they were. And he hands out a bunch of drawings <laughs> to the class. And we toke up. No, and wait, what grade was this in? Well, this is now freshman English. So this is, uh, I was a freshman. Wow. So amazing, now Doc, uh, Michael Aldrich is now Dr. Michael Aldrich. He was one of the founding... Um, people who helped cannabis become legal. His early group was uh, Lee Mar, and then, of course, there was uh, working with so many other groups. So he's a legend in certain aspects. And uh, for me, that was the first time I ever really listened to music, having smoked or 
even part of a joint. Mm-hmm. And it made it just like I had been reading about. You could get more into the music. But now I was just a listener. I was a consumer. When mm-hmm. with, with as it wasn't until that time that uh, pot, we, whatever one wants to call it, was even available to us at the University of Buffalo, at least in my group. Right. So, but shortly mm-hmm. thereafter, that summer, I started getting uh, access and started exploring, uh, exploring with that. And when the Beatles came out with uh, Sergeant Pepper, and when mm-hmm. my bands, uh, the band members would toke up before we go on stage, it was a way to get really focused and more into the music so that you could block out uh, distractions. And listening to Sgt. Pepper, uh, both straight and with smoking, and at least once with uh, LSD, that final oh. chord of A Day in the Life was one of my, was like a university class, listening to all the harmonics. And it wasn't until like 45 years later that we found out it wasn't the drugs, that George Martin had recorded like 10 different pianos and they were all slightly out of tune. And that's how they got all the harmonics and all the overtones. But uh, for me, it was a way to get really access deep listening. And uh, my uh, physiology, just like I was never able to drink a whole can of beer, uh, my body just wouldn't accept it. Uh, I pretty much never smoked a whole joint at once. Mm. My body just won't do it. So I was an early adopter of microdosing. So I would have a Mm -hmm. toke and then use my mind to take me where I needed to go. And that would be in the studio, which is also totally quiet and anechoic, which became my sound temple. But uh, so I I don't know if it's half of my albums. There might might be a toke going on. Some albums were done totally nothing (laughs) at all. Obviously, the album called Cannabis Dreams, every track Uh was recorded being inspired by a certain strain Uh of uh, marijuana. Uh, And that became a bit of a research project because certain strains, when I would Mm -hmm. have a toke, I could hear the same music that I heard the week before when I was in the studio. Now, no one has done any research on that. No one has written about that. It was part of my experience. But, uh, Mm -hmm. and and I'm, I'm grateful for that. Uh, and now that the growers and the uh, dispensaries talk about, uh, tell us what the suggested effects might be, just like I would talk about the suggested effects of the music, I'm really happy to see more spirituality coming back into the world of, quote, recreational cannabis. But for me, uh-huh. it was always just going into the studio, which was a totally soundproof chamber, not the control room, but mm-hmm. the actual room that was recording, I became a bit of a legend at the uh, music annex where I was recording in the 70s and 80s uh, because I would tell the engineer, if the session starts at one o'clock, take a half hour break. Just let me be in the room. And he says, what? Mm. You're going to pay us and you're not going to do anything? I said, no, I'm going to do something, but you're not going to be able to see it. I'm going to meditate. I'm going to tune in and a half hour later he comes in, turns on the light and we start recording. And the rumor was, we don't know what he does in that half hour. It's called meditation. But when he starts playing, he doesn't make mistakes. So it's like first take. So I didn't have to do a lot of editing in those days. Uh, Now with the last 
20 years with digital editing. There are a lot of things. I may spend 20 minutes just getting the last 12 seconds of a song mm. to fade out mm -hmm. just right to bring in these different other things. I've been working with a great engineer for 25 years, but mm -hmm. uh, editing now is a whole lot more sophisticated and um, uh, we could do things that we could never do back in the old uh, analog tape days. But right. uh, it, it, what I also learned early on is if my fingers hit a note that I didn't want to hit, we could go back, but I couldn't just punch it in because I couldn't remember what I had just done. So I had to do the whole song over. So that was wow. another part of my process. In concert, huh. uh, when I would, as my father would say, when you made a mistake, uh, uh -huh. if I hit a note that clearly wasn't something I intended, uh -huh. probably the first time I might have apologized to the audience, I found out that the audience never heard it. They were in the right. state. They were in the experience. And for mm -hmm. me to say, oops, broke the spell. So I would wow. notice it. It was my job to get back into the zone, get into the flow, and then play from there. And that's been how uh, my, my albums have proceeded over the years. Interesting. So, so okay, so that's really, uh, I love that. So when you, because I was going to say, uh, to kind of walk me through the process of creating a song. So when you, so previously you meditate, you tap in, and then, you know, you haven't, you haven't written the song, you know, there's no notes written out. So when you're playing the song, it's improvisational, if you will, it's intuitive. So then you're just, and, and, and I'm curious about the instruments you play. So you're just sitting in front of the keyboard the engineer hits record and you are moving your your through your heart out into your hands to whichever key is calling you to create the next sound in this particular song? Not quite. Uh, okay. Just circle back a bit. Uh, yeah, I know. I'm sorry to put words in your mouth. I'm just trying to no, walk fine. through it. I'm trying to. I'm trying right, to imagine right, right. the experience. You know, I when when I had my Fender Rhodes electric piano, we mm -hmm. would be able to add some reverb and echo, and now it's a much more sophisticated uh, effects chain. But pretty much, it was I plug it in and I plug in. I'm right there on grand piano. My engineers, I would always work with them to use the microphones to get more of the overtones, the exact opposite of what other engineers and other artists want, uh, because they want just the note and I want all the aura of the notes. But when it comes to synthesizers, uh, there's always been some sounds that take me right into another zone and some that I hate. So I don't use the ones I hate. I don't play certain, when the DX7 was the, best synthesizer that you heard on all the albums, I would never play one because the sound itself of all the sounds that it would make felt like little needles and, and pins sticking me. Didn't mm -hmm. allow my creativity flow. So I've identified on all my different electronic uh, keyboards some of the sounds that when I play them take me into the zone. Uh, mm -hmm. On an album called Higher Ground, I had stopped into my local music store on the way to the studio because it was on the way. And the manager who knows me says, we just got this new keyboard and you're going to love some of the sounds. 
So I said, okay, let me hear it. He plays one sound. It was called Merlin. Okay, a great uh-huh. name. So somebody knew something <laughs> yeah. was happening with it. And right. I immediately go into an altered state. And I say, great, I'll buy it. And he says, don't uh-huh. you care what else it could do? I said, I don't care. It gets that sound. And I'm already. Wow. So I took it to the studio. I plugged in. And the whole half of the album called Higher Ground unfolded. Mm. So the sound itself, when I would then play different chords, I could play the same D minor suspended ninth that I played on another sound that was just eh. When I used that sound, I was off into space and the whole recording flowed from there. Then I would come back and do overdubs. So the sound itself has always been my my muse also that would get me into the state and those are the right. instruments that i've bought most recently on an album called uh the one that you mentioned that got the uh the grammy nomination high uh, deep alpha and also uh-huh. deep theta as an experiment right. i created a a bed a musical background that uh-huh. included not just my favorite sustained uh, drone tones, but I added in some brainwave entrainment frequencies that would specifically and precisely get my brain into either a deep alpha state or a deep theta state. And the first day I did that was another transformative moment in my recording career because I was instantly in a deep meditation state and the whole album unfolded from that first uh, aspect that I'll give you and your uh, listeners and your viewers uh, a hint. Track 13 and 14 of Deep Alpha uh-huh. and Deep Theta are the traps that, tracks that I was listening to when I recorded most of the rest of the album. So these are the most ambient, uh, there's, there's not any lead instrument, but the harmonic bed resonates your brain and trains your brain and takes you into that same state. And if you're playing music right. or if you're working on creative writing or just wanting to meditate, this is the music I'd listen to as, as again, someone who doesn't, like, like many people, I don't have 20 minutes to meditate twice a day or mm-hmm. I, I tell myself that. But I say, okay, if I have five <laughs> minutes, how do I yeah. make the most effective use of five minutes? And if you only yeah. have 30 seconds, you have another problem. So I don't deal with that, you know, but if out of a 24 hour day, if you can't take five minutes to meditate, you need to look at that. But I want to get right into the zone when I meditate. So I don't want to spend 20 minutes getting into a relaxed state. So I put on deep theta. I put on deep alpha, either one of the first tracks or track 13, which is also up on my YouTube channel. And we have have videos so you can just watch yeah. it and get visual entrainment and oral entrainment. Yeah. And I am there. So for the next four minutes and 44 seconds, I'm meditating in deep theta and I get the benefits of a 20 minute meditation. And love- again, coming from New York, uh, I'm and like the old MTV <laughs> days. I want my meditation. I want my relaxation and I want it now. I don't want to yeah, wait. Yeah. And, right. and one other thing going back, when I was in grad school, uh, people said, well, this is great. You should take this to the world or to the music therapists. And I said, we have, I have new music that could get people relaxed and into a meditative state in a minute. 
And they said, there's no music that could do this. There's no classical music. You have to listen to the entire hour of the album to get, or even at least 20 minutes to get into a relaxed state. And I showed them with the biofeedback and with my experience uh, that the new music, and which is what I was saying, your music can't do it. My music can. And that upset many of them. And some of them said, well, this is great. We now have a whole new area of music therapy. But others said, if it's not classical Western European music, we, we're not going to use it. And, uh, yeah. and that's when the field of music therapy split into you know, yeah. the conservatives and the progressives. And uh, it's right. really a, a strange situation. But if people are so addicted to the classical form uh -huh. or that there's only one way or the Mozart effect and some of the other scams that have been uh -huh. perpetrated uh, in, in the 1990s. Needless to say, I was a uh, one of the most vocal uh, truth tellers that there was no such thing as the Mozart effect. It was basically a scam. And I know that because I went down to UC Irvine and visited with the scientists who did the research and said, we never made the claim that Mozart was the best music, that Mozart could make you smarter. That was all enterprising right. headline writers. Oh, wow. Funny. You know, so, you know, it's really interesting because I, um, I interview a lot of musicians for, uh, for magazines. And, you know, of course, when you're interviewing musicians, you have to listen to the music, you know, if, you know, if you want to speak about anything. And I have to say, the more conscious I get, the more aware I get, the more closer to my higher self I get, I am really careful, if careful's the word, or maybe it's oh, just yes. conscious. I, I'm really conscious with what music I'm taking in. And then even more so, Stephen, when it has lyrics. Oh, yes. I have to, I have to be really, you know, and I interview, and, and nothing against them. God bless them. It's it's wonderful what they do, but, or, I mean, wonderful. I don't know that it's, it's all subjective, but I have to interview a lot of uh, rap artists. I have to be really conscious if I, you know, the lyrics I'm taking in and, and I, and I, and I will say, I would say now and even rock music, but I would say now like 90, 98% of the music I listen to is music like yours. And then the other music is almost like this guilty pleasure I have. And then even when even when I'm listening to those, I try and find the ones that have more positive lyrics right, right. that I'm, you know, that I can feel that, you know, because I can I can really feel it. I'm really sensitive to the lyrics and the sound, particularly the lyrics. But, um, you know, I can feel the sound uh, affecting me. And, you know, you know, right. so then another thing I wanted to ask you. First of all, I love that Deep Theta song, the track 13. That's, I mean, that's that's the one you did with Jorge Alfano. I love it. No, that's on Deep Theta 2.0. Oh, 2.0, okay. That's the one that okay. featured the uh, Shakuhachi and the Bansurai. Deep Theta okay. was, was uh, part of the research I was doing was a, a uh -huh. lot of the same tracks, the same music, the same notes, but with a different entrainment. Right. And uh, the Deep Alpha version we could have this conversation, it's relaxed alertness. But the deep uh -huh. theta is a deeper experience. And mm -hmm. I wouldn't, I, I don't advise driving with the deep theta album. Uh, I, I, I bike a lot. I bike ride and I listen to it, which is wonderful. 
Well, there you go. Um, but so, Steve, you know, back, back, you know, now that we have all this information about Hertz, you know, I see it all over, particularly, you know, like Spotify. It's like there's 532 Hertz, you know, right. four Hertz, et cetera, et cetera. When you were coming up, you know, I imagine when you when you met the guy that had the biofeedback uh, research center, you found out more about it. But like that must have felt a little bit wild west for you because did you have the language of all this stuff? Did you know, oh, okay, this is a four hertz song. It's affecting me on this wavelength. This is 532. It's affecting me on this length. Or was it just oh, okay, wow, this sound really resonates with me and makes me feel good. Well, you know, how did that, when when did you start, you know, getting the actual verbiage of, okay, this is four, this is five, you know, 532, so on, this is theta, this is alpha, you know? Uh, I actually started learning about that during my last months at the University of Buffalo because uh, Charlie Tart's book on altered states of consciousness had just arrived in the bookstore and I borrowed it. And I gave it back, uh, although they claimed I didn't. Uh, but that was part of my opening to some of the research that was going on. I thought a book that talked about higher states of consciousness, I would get, out, get high reading it. It was very dry. It was right. just, you know, just research, yeah. and I would joke with Charlie Tal uh -huh. when I met him years later that that was the experience. But there's also two things about your question. When you see numbers like 532 hertz, that is the actual uh -huh. sound of the frequency of the music. When we talk about okay. brain waves, we're talking typically okay. below 16 uh, cycles per second. So it's not a musical tone. We don't hear eight mm -hmm. cycles per second. We can't hear four cycles, but we can uh, create that effect in the studio with uh, binaural beats and uh, the kind of uh, soundscape that puts different uh, sounds into the right and left channel. And the difference is what your brain decodes uh, as it. Now, I, I could say that, uh, I could tell you that most all of my music has been recorded at standard 440 Hertz, just like everybody else. A lot of those frequencies, uh, like the 532 or 528, don't relate to what you can play on a piano. So that that's another area. And depending on uh, what version you listen to or what people have done with it, uh, I found very mixed results from some some of that um, uh, the just the frequencies themselves. Now. There's an album that I have called Ohm Zone 432, as uh, well as I love Ohm Sound Zone. Healing. I love Ohm Zone. Right. And what I found is that when I chanted at four, 432 hertz, as, uh -huh. instead of 440, that's a little bit lower, that my voice opened up more. It, the keyboard didn't open up because you can't tune a piano to you know 432 without it exploding. But you could very easily tune the synthesizer or we get a tone from the computer. I would match that. And that's what I did on my own zone 432 album. I chant, and I'm not a chanter per se, not a trained vocalist, mm -hmm. that my voice opened up without even warming up in the studio. And I was just, I, I remember saying, you know, uh, we're working with... Uh, uh, Melissa, 
uh, Felipe at that point, let me just sing along in the studio, just record this just to see what happens. And the best vocal I've ever done manifested. Now, I can't tell you how that happened, it, uh, but there was part of the magic that showed up on that album. And uh, my experience of the 432 is I've done, I've tuned some of the albums like Echoes of a Dream to 432, but there's, yeah. there's not nearly enough research to, uh, to show which tuning or what the difference really is. Because here's the thing, when you listen to a piece of music at regular pitch, 440, and you listen to 432, it sounds way lower. But if the next day you listen to the 432 version, and then you, then you listen to the 440, it's like, doesn't sound right. So whichever one you listen to first changes and colors your perception. So uh, most of the research that I've seen does not have the kind of controls or placebo control, double blind studies. So mm -hmm. it's just feel what you feel. Uh, feel. What yeah. I also know is good music recorded at 440 is much better than bad music recorded at 432. And I won't okay. mention names of some of the musicians who play some of the bad music, but uh, uh, they're out there. Some of them actually have done some really bad ripoffs of my own albums, and I could tell. Interesting, you know. And, That's interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I was I was actually curious about that. I was curious if there's almost like counterfeits. Of oh yes, the healing the healing frequency music. I was wondering, you know, because I'm just like because I was talking to a friend. Well, first, well. Okay, so there's a couple things. I'd love for you to explain to the layman what alpha and theta means and delta. But I was also curious, you know, my friend sent me some tapes a while ago and he was like, man, look at this. It wasn't, It. he was like, man, look at this guy on YouTube. He's got, you know, millions of, of likes on this song. Not, I'm not talking about you. I'm just, just some random person offering, you know, quote unquote, healing music. And my friend was like, what if I just got a synthesizer and started putting some notes together? Wouldn't, and, I, and I thought, is it that simple? I don't, I don't know if it's that, if, I don't know. Well, you raise good points. I've heard some of those. I don't know that I heard that one. We'll talk off, uh, offline. But I've heard some stuff that mm -hmm. that's exactly what it sounds like. It sounds like somebody read the first paragraph of what's going on says, I could do that. And that's why there's so much crap that's out there. Not only that, Spotify and some other companies are now using AI to compose. And I know oh, I've wow. heard some of that because it's just, it's for me, it's like nails, fingernails on a blackboard. <laughs> and uh -huh. it just, I just have to get it off. It's like you were talking about rap and some of this stuff before. Uh, even when I'm watching the Grammys a couple of times ago, when, the weekend came on with that blinding light thing. Right. I started having an epileptic seizure, so I had to <laughs> yeah. turn it off right away and go. Right. How could that be the best-selling song and right. an award-winning song when it's so dangerous to me? But obviously, uh -huh. a lot of people like it. So uh, you know, different strokes for different folks. But here's the thing: our brain I is an know electrical if... organism. Yeah. And it operates, you know, our body is an electrical nervous system, but our brain pulsates at different frequencies. Mm -hmm. When we're speaking like we are right now, our brains are usually around 12 
uh, or uh, cycles per second in the higher range of what is called the beta frequencies uh, between mm -hmm. 12 and let's say 30 cycles per second. There's, there's a little question about what the higher range is. When you mm -hmm. slow that down, you get to alpha between eight and 12 cycles per second. And mm -hmm. that's where around eight cycles per second, that's where the energy that comes out of healers' hands was, was measured by people like Dr. Andre Puharaj and the healers like Yuri Geller and Olga Worrell. Uh, when you mm. slow the brain waves down more, you get into the theta range, and that is where deeper healing happens. That's where uh, more creativity happens, and that's also where, when you're in that state, you are better able to uh, communicate, to instruct your genes, to express for optimal uh, wellness. This is what wow. Deepak Chopra's you know, recent book on super genes talks about, and a lot of wow. that is based on the work of... Uh, uh, Bruce Lipton, the biology belief really blew everybody's mind, changed the field around because, and when I first met him and he says these wonderful things, I said, Hey, Bruce, how do you, how do you talk to your genes? How do you instruct them? Because I figured there's some big secret that you have to pay to find out. He says, you speak to them in English. I go, what? It's, he said, it works. Well, if it works, let's use it. So that's that aspect. Now, Delta is below theta. It's uh, and these were named in the in the uh, sequence that they were discovered. So so the books say, uh -huh. the, uh, Delta is between one and three cycles per second. Now there are places on the internet that'll tell you that uh, Delta is one to four, and theta is four to seven. And I've been in lectures by some of those people, and I raise my hand and say, excuse me. Uh, how could Delta be both four and Theta be four? You don't know what you're talking about. And then they asked me to leave the room, but I'm right, uh -huh. you know, because uh -huh. the difference. <laughs> now, here's the other difference. Uh, when I was uh, in the studio producing and mixing my sleep album, things like um, Relax Into Sleep, uh, Sleep right. Soundly, Adding the Entrainment, uh, as we're mixing, I fell asleep as we're doing the fade out. And the engineer would say, is that fade out wow. smooth enough for you? And he doesn't get a response. And he asked me again, and then he pokes me and says, you fell asleep again. So even at <laughs> three o'clock in the afternoon, it had the effect. In deep theta, right. I don't fall asleep. I am oh. totally in the quantum field. So right. each frequency can be really, really uh, right. impactful and different. Uh, at least that's been my experience when I listened oh, to and I started working in my own research, composing music at seven hertz and eight hertz and six and five, when I got to four, magic happened. I started hearing music. And I didn't hear right. music at five hertz or six hertz or seven hertz. Now, I don't know if that's just for me, but when I find something that works for me, I use it. And I continue to yeah. use it. And I remember when that happened in, uh, it was on 11, 11, uh, 2010. I just got my new keyboard and I look at my engineer and says, we're going to be doing a lot of recording at four hertz from now on because that takes me into my sacred space where the sound temple opens up and I am tuning into the quantum field. Mm. Well, I believe they th that that's beautiful. Thank you for that. And I believe they say that when you're meditating, you're tapping into the delta field, which might be why when you is that that's wrong? I see you shaking your head. That's that's not what I've heard from everybody else. Delta is sleep. 
Okay, so alpha so and well, theta is meditation. Right. Okay. Well, what's interesting is that sometimes I fall asleep during meditation. So then oh. maybe you're just going, maybe you're going beyond the alpha and theta. So, yeah. so delta is like at one hertz. Is that one, what you're two saying? or three? That's sleep. Okay. Is is there something? It, this might be an esoteric question. Is there something below that? Is there is there a cosmic hum below that potentially? Uh, I don't know that it's below. Well, on one level, yes, but we can't hear it. But the cosmic hum, uh, according to certain spiritual scientists, basically is a harmonic of the hydrogen atoms. And that turns out to be a harmonic of eight cycles per second, which allows us to also entrain to the dominant frequency of our planet, which is about eight hertz. The atmosphere is basically humming and resonating at about eight hertz. And that's a function of lightning and thunder pulsing the atmosphere. The great uh, scientist who really put that information out there was Itzhak Bentoff, who was one of uh -huh. my personal mentors. And I had an opportunity uh, to use some of his proprietary machinery to test chakra resonances, to check brainwaves that no one else had access to. But again, through good karma and connections, uh, I had access to, to deal with that. So that's when we talk about the cosmic ohm, uh, some scientists right. and spiritual mystics say that the universe is humming or ohming, but it's below the threshold of our hearing. But when you step up those frequencies and double and double and double octaves, you get to about eight cycles per second. And that's the Earth resonant frequencies. Technically, it could be 7.83 to eight cycles per second. Again, that's the frequency that uh, many psychics have been measured, the energy coming out of their fingers at eight hertz. So wow. that's why we know that that's the thing. And in the early days, alpha waves was the, the big deal. We didn't even know about theta or some of the other things. But uh, oh. there were different levels of alpha, different, you need to start getting more specific. But on an right. album like my, my Deep Alpha, everything has been cleared. I get it cleared by you know spiritual mentors and uh, other people. Mm -hmm. So we know it's all safe to listen to. But what right. I would... So always also point out, never drive with a deep delta or with any delta frequencies because you will fall okay. asleep and not realizing you're falling asleep at the wheel. Wow. Okay. And I, I had that happen that... one time after I was working on a sleep day. Even though we, <laughs> I wasn't listening in my car, I still had a hangover from working on the right. album uh, an hour right. before in the studio, and I kind of faded right off the road. Luckily, it was a country road. Wow. Uh, so I didn't wow. hit anything, but I got out of the car, walked around for 10 minutes and said, I will never do that again. Wow. And that's why I'm here today. Incredible. So, so these brainwave Incredible. frequencies can be really powerful if they're done right. If you listen to many things on the internet, they sound like, well, you know, there are different ways to get people's attention. Uh, you could hit them over the head with a two by four, or you could give them a caress and say, hey, come over here. I'm kind of the right. lover musician. I said, come over here. I will yeah. invite you in to the alpha state where some of the stuff on the internet is like, we're going to hit you over the head. I call that stomach pump music. It sounds like a jackhammer. That is the opposite yeah. of meditation for me. Right. Yeah. Oh, wow. 
Well, thank you so much, Stephen. I mean, we're o- we're over an hour and we scheduled for an hour. I feel like we could be here for another three or four hours or, you know, I, I there's so much. And maybe maybe you'll come on again and, and talk to us again. And my brother can be on, too, because yeah. my brother listens to your music and he loves it. And we're just, you know, big fans of yours. And you're a treasure to, you know to the world really and i'm and i'm super excited and grateful to uh introduce you to as many people as possible so um and thank you, know, and thank I, you for that and yeah, let's see absolutely. if people uh, send you questions or send me questions care my website yeah. or send me a tweet or yeah. something and absolutely. then we'll know we, we, we might want to answer next time for sure i love that and all, all of your information we'll put it in the show notes and um my brother Eben will do an intro to this episode, uh, so you'll be you'll be totally um, out there on the on our uh, on our feed there. So, um, well, Stephen Halpern, father of New Age music, thank you so much for being here today. Uh, I'll probably go for a bike ride now and listen to some more of your stuff. So, All right. Um, great. Have until a great next ride. time. Thank you, sir. <laughs>